This is Misrepresent Behind the Face of Fierce Woman. Welcome, fierce listeners, to a brand new season, season two of Misrepresent Behind the Face of Fierce Woman. I'm your host, Charlene Sayo, and I'm thrilled not only to present a lineup of fierce women, but I'm also very excited to introduce new features and the brand new website, misrepresentpodcast.com. Over the last year, friends and dedicated listeners have been asking, when will I be putting out new episodes? Who am I interviewing? And why am I taking so long to get new episodes out? Well, to be honest, I hadn't planned on taking such a long break. In fact, since December of last year, I've been working on the website, researching, getting feedback from listeners, interviewing, assessing, and also just taking in the surprise success Misrepresent achieved in less than a year. When I first started podcasting, I really didn't know what I was doing, where I was going, how often I was going to produce an episode, how long each episode was going to be. I didn't even know how to edit audio tracks. All I really knew was that I wanted to conduct feminist-themed interviews with fascinating women in the arts, science, feminism, activism, music, and beyond. Each and every woman I reached out to who graciously agreed to be interviewed blew me away and exceeded my expectations. I was in a constant state of inspiration and it didn't take long for me to fall in love with podcasting and to keep featuring women who I believe are upstanding, articulate, and much-needed role models for girls and women everywhere. Beyond my guests, I was very surprised by the responses from listeners and the support and opportunities that came my way. I'm very honored to have Misrepresent included in the Rabble Podcast Network, and over the last year, I've met fellow podcasters, spoken at public speaking events, I've been offered writing and blogging gigs, and I've connected with communities and individuals whose stories I may never have been able to access had I not started podcasting. So this brings us to now, the second season of Misrepresent, which is loaded with new features, a brand new website which includes essays related to the featured guests, and resources related to the theme of Misrepresent, which is primarily all about women's history, culture, and culture making. In reflection of these themes, Women Hurrying History, a new segment at the beginning of each episode, will feature a particular shiro, feminist or historical event that tells of women's collective willpower and action. I'll kick off the premiere of Women Hurrying History with some very special guests in just a few minutes, so stay tuned for that. For the premiere episode of the second season, I'm ecstatic to feature the sassy and fearless New York-born and raised artist and photographer, Nona Faustine Simmons, who will be talking about her jaw-dropping and critical photo series, White Shoes, a series that exploded over the summer and has taken the art world by storm. She has so much to say and I enjoyed interviewing her and we as listeners and fans have so much to learn from her. So I'm so, so honored to have her on the show. So to wrap up this very long introduction, I want to thank you, the dedicated and very patient listeners. Thank you so much for sticking around and for new listeners, welcome to the show. I also want to give a very special shout out and acknowledgement to Andrew Sayo, Irene Cloma, and David Ball, whose overwhelming support and encouragement lifted Misrepresent off the ground and online. And because this is a very long introduction, we'll take a short break, which actually doubles as a preview for next week's episode, where I'll be featuring New York's very first all-female transnational multiracial mariachi band, 
Mariachi Flor de Toloache. And here they are performing the mariachi classic track, Guadalajara.
Welcome back to Misrepresent Behind the Face of Fierce Woman. Earlier in the hour, I explained about new features and segments, and here's one of them. When you hear this old-time phonographic marching tune, you'll know that it's time for Women Hurrying History. So Women Hurrying History will highlight a particular woman, historic event, or a revolutionary moment within a large social movement where women's collective interests were met or a woman whose actions changed social norms and values. I'm really proud of the very first Women Hurrying History segment, not only because it's all about civil rights icon Ruby Bridges, who was born on this day in 1960, but because I had the great pleasure of collaborating with sassy tweens Kaya and Cassia Anderson from Toronto, Ontario, who, alongside with their awesome mother, started a month-long feminist girls' camp this past summer called Camp Awesome. Now, one of the fundamental aspects of Camp Awesome was that the participants chose, researched, and completed mini-projects about girl heroes, or in the feminist parlance, sheroes. One of Camp Awesome's chosen sheroes was Ruby Bridges, and since Misrepresent is all about featuring courageous and intelligent women as role models, it's only fitting that I also collaborate with and learn from future feminist leaders. What makes this segment special is that Kaya and Cassia not only narrated this piece about Ruby Bridges, but they did all the research and wrote the script for this entire segment. So fierce listeners, it's my great pleasure and honor to present the very first Women Hurrying History segment featuring Kaya and Cassia Anderson. In 1954, the United States Supreme Court made a decision to desegregate schools in the Brown v. Board of Education case. In that same year, on September 8, 1954, Ruby Nell Bridges was born in Tallahassee, Mississippi. Ruby later became the first African-American child to desegregate schools in the American South. When Ruby Bridges was six years old, she took a test that African-American students took to see whether or not they could attend an all-white school with plan for integration. Ruby was one of the four students selected to attend the all-white school because they had the highest scores. In 1960, Ruby was the only child who was sent to an all-white school in New Orleans, Louisiana. Ruby attended William France Elementary School in New Orleans. She had to be escorted by U.S. federal marshals because mobs of people did not want integration. Ruby was threatened by mobs of people. Parents pulled their children out of school and some teachers refused to teach because she was an African-American child. Mothers of downtown New Orleans screaming at a Negro child as she entered the William Franz Elementary School, first in the city to be integrated. Once I got into the school, all of these people here rushed inside of the building. They were taking out their children. Over 500 kids walked out of school that day. What is your reaction to the court's decision continuing integration? I don't want the niggas going in that school. Well, it's the... It's a white school. There is a famous painting by Norman Rockwell called The Problem We All Live With, showing the brave Ruby Bridges going to school while facing race. Ruby Bridges taught us to love one another and to be courageous because people threatened her by telling her that they would poison her 
or when people threw things at her and told her not to come back, she did not let that stop her from going to school. Ruby Bridges is important because even though she was a six-year-old girl, she was an important part of the civil rights movement. She shows us that even young people can make a difference. She is an inspiration to all children because she was courageous and brave. She did not let anyone stop her from going to school and she made a difference. She did not let people's negativity stop her from doing what was right. Ruby teaches us that we are not born hating or disliking anyone, but things like racism are taught and passed on to children. Ruby Bridges is still making a difference and works with youth today. Ruby taught us to not judge people by anything except for how they are on the inside. Ruby is important today because without her, schools could still be separated. I think it is important to be like Ruby because if we are not like Ruby, no change will happen. If I ever met Ruby, I would tell her that without her, I probably would not be going to the same school as some of my other friends. You cannot look at a person and judge them by the color of their skin. That shaped me into who I am today.
This is Misrepresent Behind the Face of Fierce Woman. Hey, fierce listeners, welcome back to Misrepresent Behind the Face of Fierce Woman. You just heard the big band sound of the Underscore Orchestra and their track, Americana Jam, from their album, Tales from the Road. So now we're at the heart of the show, where for the next half an hour, I have the honor to share a very lively conversation with a unique trailblazing woman in either the arts, science, literature, music, politics, activism, feminism, and beyond, and sometimes all. My guest for this episode is Brooklyn-born and raised artist and photographer, Nona Faustine Simmons. Nona is a graduate of the School of Visual Arts and the ICP Bard MFA program. Nona's photos explores what it means to be a woman in the 21st century with a focus on gender, identity politics, history, and folklore. Her most recent photo series, White Shoes, has garnered international attention and praise over the last few months and has been featured in The Guardian, The Huffington Post, Hyperallergic, Artnet, Art for Change, and more. Since graduating from grad school in 2013, Nona's work has been widely exhibited in institutions such as the Schoenberg Center for Black Research in Harlem, New York, and the International Center of Photography. I spoke with Nona in Flatbush, Brooklyn over the summer, where she discussed her White Shoe series, the history of slavery in New York, why Black Lives Matter, art, politics, and the legacy of strong womanhood in her family. So hi, Nona. Thank you for being here in Misrepresent. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. How are you? I'm so excited to be sitting with you here in a beautiful cafe outside in the summer in Brooklyn. Yes. To talk to you about your magnificent series, White Shoes. That's just been blowing up everywhere. Right. But for those who don't know, especially the Canadian listeners who may not be familiar with your work, can you share the story behind White Shoes? Well, White Shoes began as my thesis work at the International Center of Photography, Bard College, in 2012. And I took most of the images 23- through 2013. And I'm still, it's an ongoing series I'm working on. The inspiration was um, two women from the 19th century that were basically my muse, two enslaved African descendant women. And then it began also to take, uh, inspired by slavery in New York, the hidden history of slavery in New York City. For about 250 years, um, slavery existed in New York City. And after it was abolished, there was a big attempt to just cover it up and move on and pretend like it never happened. And so there's places in New York City that I go that have a strong link to the past um, that I go to these sites and I do self-portraits in the nude. That's what the, the, the whole basis of the, of the series is about. Your series, you just said, is inspired by two African women who were enslaved. One of them is Sarah Bartman, mm-hmm. who was known as a hot and hot Venus. Right. And for those who don't know who Sarah Bartman is, they, you know, she was a woman who was kidnapped from Africa mm-hmm. and then trafficked to Europe mm-hmm. and was a sideshow. Right. Essentially called a sideshow free. Right. Which is very derogatory. Right. And, and in terms of what was done to her. Right. But I see a connection in your photos where she was brought to Holland Mm -hmm. and the locations that you've chosen for your work, uh, White Shoes, where you've posed in front of monuments are also known as former Dutch settlements. Mm -hmm. 
was this a, a conscious decision on your part to pose at these iconic uh, locations around New York? Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of those sites you're referring to is the Dutch Cemetery in Brooklyn, and that is a neighborhood uh, that I live in. And I didn't know growing up the history of that, that site or cemetery. Then once I did, uh, I found out there was three enslaved Africans buried in the all-white cemetery who were given special privilege. They have unmarked graves. We don't know where in the cemetery they were. So that was like one of the sites that I felt was key in talking about the erasure and uh, of black people and their existence here. And then there are other places like um, New York City uh, Hall, New York City Hall, um, which is on an African burial ground, uh, a 6.6 acre, 15 to 20,000 bodied burial ground um, that spans lower Manhattan. And it goes all the way from like, you know, City Hall to what was the former World Trade Center site. And basically when slavery was over, these, these places were landfilled with 25 feet of landfill and the city just built on top of them. And it was intentional, you know? Um, so we, I go to places like that to call attention to these facts in our history that people do not know about. Wow, <laughs> right on top. Mm -hmm. Now, what's the emphasis of white shoes though? You're, most of the photos, it's you, right. completely naked at these locations, right. Right. and you're not wearing anything except for white shoes. Some of the photos, you've got a shackle on your head. Right. So what is the emphasis of white shoes? The emphasis of white shoe, of the white shoe, I was looking for something symbolic to tie into white privilege, white patriarchy. Um, it's the reason why we were enslaved and colonized. And I want it, and, and I, I, we walk with that as people of color. We live in that world, we walk with that. And it has impacted our life in tremendous ways. And so I felt the white shoe, one, represents an ideal about whiteness, white beauty, white femi you know, feminism, um, but basically the white patriarchy that people of color can never get away from. And I've said this in other interviews and, you know, people have a hard time hearing that, but it's a fact of life for people of color in this world. What I find interesting in your photos is that unlike the paper magazine cover photo shoot of uh, Kim Kardashian, oh, yeah. that well, the cover is extremely erotic. It's it's very exhibitionist, and it's totally for the male gaze. Mm -hmm, it's for mm -hmm, men. Mm -hmm. But your photos don't do that. Your photos are very painful. They're very raw. Um, some people are very offended, I think, by the photos um, because it's conjuring up a past that people would rather just forget. Mm -hmm. I mean, City Hall mm -hmm. <laughs> was built to try to forget mm -hmm. about its slave past. Mm -hmm. But your photos are not meant for the male gaze. In fact, it really it throws it back. Mm -hmm. So um, how did you manage to not make it about the male gaze, despite the fact that you're naked in the photo? Well, I mean... Just, and you're wearing heels. Right, exactly. It was, it was... I just made sure that whenever I posed, it was not in a suggestive sexual way. And I was very conscious of the male gaze. I mean, I was in grad school. I had heard a lot about the male gaze in, in art. Um, history and so I knew that if I could keep it 
specific to the kinds of poses I, I and the kind of looks I gave to the viewers that would signal that I was not talking about sex, you know, it's sex literally, uh, or being sexual, you know, would, um, they would get it. Yeah. Yeah. Was it scary for you, though, to do, to engage in these photos at first? Absolutely. Yeah? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was really, really, sometimes I get sick when I, 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 I am going to go on these shoots. I have to prepare mentally as well as physically because it's heavy, deep stuff. I'm strongly connected to it. Um, we're talking about my uh, my heritage. We're talking about the way I'm perceived in public as a black woman, the way my body uh, casts this, this shadow and it casts, uh, you know, the way people perceive me when I come. So we're talking about a lot of heavy, heavy stuff. And, and the whole idea of taking your clothes off in public is a nightmare, basically. You know, um, it, it's not something you can eat. I I easily do, you know, or, or can easily do, you know. But um, as far as the 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 male gaze, yeah, you have to be very specific on on how you go about this and what you're trying to say. And if you do that, you can you can pull it off. Okay. We'll get back to the male gaze and. Um and the body in just a moment. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to ask, in terms of the reactions to your photos, they've been really, really positive, but then you also have some very negative mm -hmm. reactions. You've mm -hmm. got some trolls also sending you horrible messages, mm -hmm. I imagine. Mm -hmm. And just one recently where you shared that one man just said that, why would a fat black woman take unflattering mm -hmm. photos of herself? Mm -hmm. So there's this expectation that women, mm -hmm. if they're naked, they have to be sexually arousing. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you two questions about mm -hmm. this. One, how do you react to the trolls and mm -hmm. the negative reactions? And B, how do you respond in particular to the expectation that black women's bodies are supposed to be mm -hmm. for sexual amusement? Right. Yeah. Well, one, uh, the trolls, that's simple. I ban delete. Okay. You know, I don't engage in them, with them on that level because First of all, I don't have to explain myself to someone who basically is not there to understand. They're not there to engage in a meaningful manner with me or really with anyone on, on topics of sensitive nature and, and, and talking about race and misogyny and, and all that. They're not there for that. They, their view is, is, is for attention. Their view is to belittle and degrade they are in opposition of anything you're talking about. And so on that level, I have nothing to say to them. Now, they're looking for some nudie pics. They're basically, uh, and they're looking for um, images that fit the Western ideal of beauty. Brutality and racism and subjugation of women is not supposed to look beautiful. And if that's what they're there for, then they can go pick up Playboy. Um, I'm talking about real life shit when people who were being raped in the fields on the plantations was that beautiful okay when people were being brutalized when our women are being killed in the street today by any number of people is that beautiful there's women of color there's native american women you know um who are being killed all over canada and the u.s is that beautiful 
So, so brutality and racism and, and rape of women of color is not beautiful. And the history there is not beautiful. And that's what this is, is not about. Okay. Now, on the other hand, um, the actress Caitlin Stacy made a photo series called, well, it was on her website called herself.com. Mm -hmm. And it, it was photos of herself and other women, nude photos. And her whole thesis of that series was supposed to be sexuality is liberation. Your photos don't necessarily embody that, yet you've shared that in the process of creating the series that you've embraced your body. So I find it strange and wonderful and ironic that in some aspect, aesthetically, you're not showing a liberation in your photos but then the process itself was something that you were able to accept your body more. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it's, a, it's, it's very, it's multi-layered, it's very, very complex, the issues that um, I'm bringing forth in the work and the ideals that I have. <sighs> where, where do I begin? Um, after I had my daughter, I was in this position, this unique position to celebrate uh, the female form. I, I really wanted to do, do a work that also talked about the issues that we're talking about when I choose, but also celebrate the female form, my female form. I had not seen a lot of that in, in photography uh, regarding black women, yeah. women of color, women who of color who are my size. Yeah. I knew just being in a series and showing my body that that also would signal an embrace, a liberation of, you could say, large bodies um, and my large body. And that was very important to me because for so long I had been told and taught that um, you know, I was undesirable, the big body is ugly, disgusting, and I didn't feel that way, you know, I did, I did absolutely feel that way, and I thought it was a necessity that you see that. Okay. Unlike your other photo series, Mitochondrial, mm -hmm. uh, Why Choose explores the generations of women in your family, right. so why did you decide to continue with this theme? You know, I grew up in a very female-centered uh, family. My father has 10 sisters. Um, yeah. And my mother has three, however. My mother is such a strong matriarch in my family. And we live together with my daughter. And the four, uh, the three of us, and I have a sister, and the four of us all together are a force like none other. And I wanted to capture that. I wanted to, I wanted to show images of us together um, and how we really live and how it is in our house. Because it's like four, three generations of women, I thought that was really powerful. And um, I just want to celebrate that, you know. And our, my daughter is like the, the first baby in the immediate family and so like she's so special you know to, as an only child and so I named my daughter for my mother I just thought it was it was a lineage that also goes back to Africa it's like four generations of women um, or five rather and then there's Africa it's straight no interruption and so I just thought that was really 
really fascinating and important to me to discuss. Okay. Yeah. Now, your photos also, um, they're like an intersection of the past and the present. Mm -hmm. I mean, absolutely, you could see that. Mm -hmm. I think what I find amazing is that on one hand, you're this like free black woman in the present, mm -hmm. standing on the sites of where your ancestors, you know, were bought and sold. So how do you come to terms or how do you reconcile uh, yourself as a free black woman in a time when hashtags like Black Lives Matter and Say Her Name are a daily reminder of actually mm -hmm. the fact that black people, not just in America, but all over the world, are in a very, well, are in a really horrific, violent position. Mm -hmm. So how do you, how do you, yeah, how do you reconcile the past and the present? And, and you could see it in your photos, mm -hmm. you really embody that. Well, you know, the whole point too of this series is about the conflict and the the, the trauma of the past, but also the present. And it's all under one umbrella. What happened to, to African Americans and people of color when they were colonized and enslaved um, versus now, we're dealing with the fallout. We're dealing with the, a fallout and, and ideas that still follow through and carry through in our present life. And we're seeing this and the brutality in the streets and police brutality and gun violence um, past um, is still with us. The history that we can still, we can't get away from really because it was based on a, a, a deep racism and um, ideal about who people of color are. And so many of those ideas that were based that was created, you know, 200, 400 years ago are still haunting us. And this is why you have this kind of, you know, brutality and violence and structural um, institutionalized racism today. And those ideas, we've never got past them. In the work, when you see me at the Wall Street slave market and you see that naked black body on display, it's also can conjure up that image of Mike Brown laying in the, on the ground, dead, you know, killed by police, you know, and just laying there. It's, it's, it's the weight of the black body in the media, in our history, and um, in politics. That body is, is, lo is loaded with history. I mean, to even further connect it, it's even just like with the recent death of Sandy Bland, mm -hmm. where she allegedly mm -hmm hung herself and mm -hmm. it just seems like something that conjures up the, the lynchings of mm -hmm. African Americans of the South. And right. So it just, I mean, I think that's why your photos are just so important. You know, you often see me with the chains and the shackles representative of, of that history of enslavement. And it's, it's the same thing now. You have mass incarceration of African people in America. It's one of the largest in the world. I mean, so the shackle that was 250 years ago or whatever when slavery was, was uh, abolished, 18, what, 67, now it's, 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 a, it's a new form of slavery. It, there is no justice system for, for African Americans, I strongly believe. If we have a huge, the hugest rate of mass incarceration around the world, we're talking about a Western nation supposedly touts uh, go around the, the, the world is, is, is an embodiment and sim, symbol of freedom 
and we are invading other countries under that banner and yet we have basically enslaved re-enslaved people of color again so the shackle is that's a perfect example past and present and coming together under one umbrella you know and i think that even just the fact that you're bringing this right up to the fact that you're highlighting the locations of burial sites, African burial sites, and also mm-hmm. slave auction sites. Mm-hmm. Now, you shared how you found out about the, the burial site here in Brooklyn, the mm-hmm. Dutch burial site mm-hmm. with the African slaves that were buried mm-hmm. underneath. But how did you find out about the rest of New York City's locations? And a second question is, how much do New Yorkers know about this history? New Yorkers know very little about this history, okay. but uh, that goes with America, period. Amer- Americans know very little about their past, really the truth about their past, okay? I found out about these sites just by reading, but basically the African burial ground in Lower Manhattan, what happened was in the 90s, they were building a federal tower there. And so before you're allowed to do any kind of building, you have to excavate. And so they found remains. That was on the city maps, maps from that go back to the beginning. They knew that that African burial ground was there. Um, they, they want to try to say they didn't know, but they knew. Okay, so they find the bones. And once they, they were going to go ahead with a full, big, huge tower on that site, but once the public found out that that exists, the city exploded. Everybody came out and there was protests. There was, first of all, one, people didn't know there was um, a huge presence of Africans in, in New York City like that. And um, two, that slavery existed on the scale that we found out that it did. And so the city people, there was a grassroots movement to fight the government to scale back this tower and really we didn't want no tower built on it okay but they weren't going to do that so they they did scale back the tower so as far as that is concerned that was how I found out now I was taught in school there was slavery but it wasn't as full scale and big as we were taught well comes to find out New York City was so neck deep in slavery and a relationship with the antebellum South that we almost didn't fight in the Civil War on the side of um, the Union. We, we, we debated whether to even go into the Civil War fighting on the Union side because we had such money and investments in slavery in the South. So we, we, we got their cotton, we manufactured the cotton, we sent them luxury goods, the whole nine yards. They, the slave masters came from the South to New York on vacation with their slaves. I mean, it was, you know, yeah. we, were, we were deep. You were born and raised in Flatbush, mm-hmm. which is a former Dutch settlement. Well, I was, I was actually born and raised in, in Brooklyn Heights, but um, the first place I was brought home from the hospital was Crown Heights, okay. and I grew up there, and then uh, as well as Flatbush. Okay. Yeah. So, but you basically were, you spent... I raised, I was raised in Flatbush. In Flatbush. Yeah. um, Which is a former Dutch settlement. Right. Was this the motivation for your very controversial and I think very amazing photo, Venus of Black Boss? Yes, (laughs) yes. You know, it's a funny story behind that. 
I, that piece was selected to be in a show um, at La Maison de in Harlem. And I was thinking of a title. And one of the artists gave me a name. He said, why don't you name it after the, the place you're from? And I was like, wow, you know, because my work also talks about going against a type of Western beauty ideal, and because I am from this neighborhood with this history, I, I, I just thought it linked me in a certain kind of way to a past and to a history, but also to a present. And it was sort of an anti, uh, sort of a, you know, uh, that kind of beauty, Western beauty ideal. It was sort of anti that. And I just thought that name you know, the Venus of Willendorf. I love that little statue. Um, and I often sort of like think of myself as shaped like that. And so Venus of Willendorf, Venus of Flockboss, I yeah. just thought it, it was perfect. Yeah, and Flockboss is the Dutch. The Dutch name for Flatbush, yes. Wow, see, mm -hmm. you just intersect history so much. And it's funny because are you very conscious of this or is it just something you think that you just embody it just well, comes out well you know I, I i gotta say i received a very good education at the international center of photography at bard college and it was one that really taught us to think critically about our lives um think critically about our art and think if you're going to do something to really think about it in all kinds of different ways and once I had that, that, that information and those tools, everything I was talking about in this series, I, I just found ways to, it just all fit like yeah. a puzzle yeah. for me. Yeah. And I don't know if I'll be able to do that with any other work that I create, but this work, I mean, it was really, it was really talking about incidents and layers and history um, of my life. You know, things that happened all while while I was growing up, questions that I had all throughout of grow, you know my growing up into my adult years, and things that happened to me that one day we just all came together in art, and art really has saved my life. It really has. Now you brought up a story once where you said you had a professor <sighs> who said that doing photos about history or the past wouldn't be marketable or it wouldn't be something very commercial like you wouldn't be able to really sell it but you did it anyway can you talk about that and how did that shape your experience with your photos okay your well work? well actually he didn't say it exactly like that but he, it was hinted it was it was it was hinted that that you know I mean, you know, you go to these art schools and they want you to make, they want you to make a living, you know, they want you to be able to make your art and sell it and make a living. And, you know, they know that political art is not seen as favorable. Um, and I don't, I don't categorize my work as political. I mean, I know we're talking about a lot of political shit here. I mean, come on. But I, I don't, I don't like categories. I don't like to limit myself. I don't like um, that kind of thing. But anyway, he felt, uh, he said, if you're trying to, to make work that 
fits into some missing piece of the puzzle, you know, forget about it. And a friend, <laughs> and a friend of mine who went to Yale and graduated from Yale, he, he's the one who actually told me, they don't want you to make that kind of art because it's, it's, it's not going to get you an income that you can contribute back to the alumni as an alumni. You know, you're not going to fill their coffers off of political art, selling political art, you know. Um, so they try to dissuade you from that because, you know, the museums and stuff, they don't have that kind of thing in their, in their, in their collections. Or maybe they do, maybe they don't. It all depends. But plenty of ideas behind a lot of these works and the work that um, artists make are political ideas, you know, are about feminine. Look at Barbara Kruger. You know, she's she's one of them who talks about, you know, feminism and beauty ideals and and um, politics and racism. You know, they're all doing it, but they're doing it in such a way that you you make, doesn't scream it. You know what I'm saying? And so there's you have to figure out how to do it with that doesn't scream it. But I don't think a lot of black artists can get who are doing work around what I'm doing can get away with that because once you put the black body in art. It, it it's it's so loaded, you know. It's so loaded with with politics and history that that the black body is political, you know. It's about trying to suppress, and also it puts you in a box that may be hard to get out of. But I didn't care about that. I had to, I didn't care about that. I had to do it. I had to make the kind of art that I wanted to make it's a it's a risk yes it's a risk but I had to go for it because it was something inside of me that I couldn't let go of now maybe I'll go forward in the future and make some prints and paintings and 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 photographs about dirt uh you know um something that it but I bet you somebody will find something political about that Nona, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you.
you just heard the powerhouse vocals of Mireya Ramos and Shefiel of Mariachi Flor de Toloache, who will be my featured guests on next week's show. Speaking of which, we're at the end of this episode. Thank you everyone for listening to my conversation with artist and photographer, Nona Fustine Simmons. For more information about Nona and her work, check out nonafustine.verb.com. That's nonafustine.virb.com. You can listen to past episodes of Misrepresent at the brand new site, misrepresentpodcast.com, and make sure to follow me on Twitter at Just Call Me Char. Intro and outro music by Emily Simone. Additional music by Stealing Orchestra and Rafael Genosio, Mariachi Flor de Toloache, Steve Combs, Adam Seltzer, and the Underscore Orchestra. Fierce thank yous to my guests, Nona Fustine Simmons, and also to Andrew Sayo, Irene Cloma, Kaya Anderson, Kasia Anderson, and Geraldine Guevara, whose talents and generosity made this episode possible. And of course, thank you, fierce listeners and supporters, because without your ears, Misrepresent wouldn't have made it to a second season. Don't forget to tune in next week for another fierce episode featuring another fierce woman. I'm your host, Charlene Sayo. This is Miss Represent, Behind the Face of Fierce Woman.